0: So um, we're just going to move on now um, and follow up on what we talked about last time, uh, which is the sevenfold permutation. It sounds kind of intimidating, um, but it's actually what we'll be talking about in the four classes um, devoted to For Whom the Bell host. Um, And last time we talked a lot um, about the voluntary versus involuntary association, including um, the idea of the involuntary foreigners, right? that both Americans and the Spanish actually um, can be involuntary foreigners. The Americans, in the simple fact that they don't have perfect command of the language and also that they are recognizable as foreigners, as outsiders in that community, but the Spanish can also be outsiders in their own community uh, because of two things, because of the print illiteracy and because of the technological uh, illiteracy. So in those t- two ways, uh, they're both stuck with a kind of involuntary association. Um, today we'll move on to the next uh, way to configure um, the, the contents of For Whom the Bell Tolls. And um, I'd like to think of it um, as a very Uh, sustained structure. Hemingway um, is a a writer who actually um, keeps not only starts out with a pattern, but keeps elaborating on that pattern. So in many ways, it really is a kind of a musical structure, theme and variation. Um, And the paradigm of distant home versus on-site environment, that actually is a theme and variation almost throughout uh, the entire For Whom the Bell Toes. Plugged into that is a kind of play between the comic and the tragic, uh, but really the, the main the dominant theme today would be the relation between distant homes and on-site environment. Um, so I have seven candidates <laughs> for the distant mm-hmm. homes. One is um, in Paris, uh, which is very odd because you know already we're in the foreign countries to American readers, um, Spain. Uh, But there's yet another foreign country, uh, France and especially Paris, uh, which makes a cameo appearance. Um, And then there are five locations, both spatial locations and temporal locations in the United States that are the distant homes uh, for Robert Jordan. So we'll talk about why each of them is invoked and the relation between that distant home and the immediate Spanish setting. But first of all, Paris. Um, Paris comes up um, in the context of Robert drinking the absinthe that he carries with him. Um, And right before that, he's actually asked for wine, and there's not a lot of wine left. So Maria wants to give him wine, but Pablo says there's not much left. So he doesn't get to have the wine from the the locals. Um, And instead, he pulls out this bottle of absinthe. um, And nobody there has seen this. Um, So he tells them that this is medicine. And um, the gypsy wants to taste what this medicine uh, tastes like. Robert Jordan pushed the cup toward him. It was milky yellow now with the water, and he hoped the gypsy would not take more than a swallow. And this was very little of it left, and one cup of it took the place of the evening papers, of all the old evening's in cafes, of all the chestnut trees that would be in bloom now in this month, of the great slow horses of the outer boulevards, of bookshops, of kiosks, and of galleries of the Park Mung of the start Buffalo, of the Butte Chamon, of the Guarantee Trust Company, and the Ile de la Cité, of Foyou's old hotel, and of being able to read and relax in the evening, of all the things he had enjoyed and forgotten. And that came back to him when he tasted that opaque, bitter, tongue-numbing, brain-warming, stomach-warming, idea-changing liquid alchemy." This is Mm. as beautiful a praise song to Paris as I've seen. Um, But what is odd Mm. about this praise song of Paris is that it actually is not pointing to all the monumental um, tourist attractions of Paris, right? No Eiffel Tower in there, no Arc de Triomphe. Um, instead, it is the chestnut trees. Actually, the horse chestnuts <laughs> um, in this picture. Um, but chestnut trees um, all over Paris, very common site. Um, kiosks, very, very common site. Um, Park Monsuhi is, is not really. It's actually kind of um, out of the way. And it's not it's not very spectacular. It's just a park. Um, and then this um, stat Buffalo, actually, I've never I, I don't even I have to look it up. It might not even be there. Um, it's a cycling track. Um, and then the park, the Butte Chamon, um, is also not. I mean, it's a nice park, but I don't think it's that famous. Um, it's more of a kind of a neighborhood park. Um, it's on a hill, so they kind of this hilly structure. This is the butte that gives the park the name. Um, and the city is the uh, island in the middle of the sand. Um, it's a very beautiful place. But once again, it's a, it's a neighborhood rather than you know, a kind of major tourist attraction, um, although the, um, the Notre Dame Cathedral um, is there. Um, and finally, uh, the Hotel Foyo once again, it's a, you know, it's a legend. Um, but it's also a place that you would just walk by every day without noticing it. And that's really the main point. Is that all those names? um, This I don't even think it is Hemingway name dropping because those names actually are not recognizable to most of us. Um, Those are just the neighborhood features, the local features of one particular, various Paris neighborhoods, Um, and those are the things that people would walk by every day and just take them for granted. And that is really what Paris means. Uh, for Hemingway, he did spend well for Hemingway <laughs> and also for Robert Jordan. Hemingway did spend um, several years in Paris. He wrote about it um, in Movable Feast*. Uh, so, and he he wrote very well in Paris. He said that he could actually write about Michigan best when he was in Paris. Um, he said that in Movable Feast*. Um, so, it, it 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 was Hemingway's home um, in the sense that it's. A place where a writer could write, and I think that there really is no better definition of home. Home is that is a place where you can work without self consciousness, where you have a work routine, um, and you c- can count on uh, being able to produce something every day. That's for me. That's also actually my my own definition of home. Um, so, um, in, so it's kind of a minor variation on on the Hemingway's kind of total obsession with writing. Um, but um, so it just, you don't have to think about it. It's just there every day and you can just do the same thing every day. Um, so that is the, is the security um, and the everydayness of Paris that is contrasted with the um, on site environment, which is very violent, unpredictable, where he's so obviously a foreigner, even though Hemingway was a foreigner in Paris. Um, the fact that he was able to write so well in Paris meant that that actually sort of the foreigners were sort of bracketed um, by his very um, productive relation to his own craft. Um, here, um, this in, in Spain is a totally different relation. So we'll look at what comes after um, that invocation in his own mind of Paris that is brought on by the absinthe. Um, the gypsy made a face and handed the cup back. It smells of anise, but it's bitter as gall," he said. It is better to be sick than have that medicine. That's the wormwood, Robert Jordan told him. In this, the real absinthe, there is wormwood. It's supposed to rot your brain out, but I don't believe it. It only changes the ideas. You should pour water into it very slowly, a few drops at a time, but I poured it into the water. What are you saying? Pablo said angrily, feeling the mockery. Explaining the medicine, Robert Jordan told him and grinned, I bought it in Madrid. It was the last bottle, and it's lasted me three weeks. He took a big swallow of it and felt it coasting over his tongue in delicate anesthesia. He looked at Pablo and grinned again. So we've seen how aggressive the locals can be when it comes to hopping on Kashkin, this foreigner just like Robert, rare name, dead, who works the explosive. Um, The aggression from the locals um, is very well matched by what I would say is sort of the good-natured aggression, but nonetheless aggression um, on the part of Robert. Um, these people know nothing about Paris. They've never been outside of Spain. Um, they've never been outside of the local community. Um, so it seems that some of them, many of them, have never been to Madrid, even uh, because these are the local gorillas. They are, you know, very much. They stay put in their own small community. Um, so even Madrid is, in, in many ways, a foreign country to them. And Robert Jordan, the American, knows Paris. He knows the capital of Spain. He knows this liquor that they've never tasted, and he's fooling them into thinking that it's medicine. Um, and he's bought the last bottle of absinthe in Madrid. Um, so all of this, just like the print illiteracy, um, that he comes upon, that he just discovers uh, without meaning to. Um, this is his actively highlighting the fact that he is much more a man of the world than they are. And there's no competition. right? I mean, this is a very well-traveled man. Just by the nature of what he's doing, he's well-traveled. Um, and these people are completely rooted in their own environment, although I should say that it is an entirely open question by the end of the novel. Um, which is the better fate, whether it's the well-traveled person who has a better future, or whether it's actually people who are rooted in the environment who have a better future, I think it's very much an open question um, by, the, by the end of the novel. At this moment, though, this is the moment when uh, Robert has his little victory over the locals. Um, you know, he's just able to show them all the things, highlight, dramatize to them all the things that he knows that they don't know. Um, so the first invocation of uh, A Distant Home has the effect actually of bringing out an edge, to say the least. And Pablo suddenly recognizes that. Um, an edge, a tension uh, between Robert and the locals uh, who are otherwise his comrades. You know, they're on the same side of the war. Um, it has a funny effect on both sides. It does something to Robert. It does mm-hmm. something to the locals, um, and that's just not even America. That's you know Paris is really doesn't have any kind of special connotation, I don't think, um, to to the locals in the sense that it Robert is not really you know um, never considered Frenchman, um, but when it comes to the invocation of the United States, it's a different story. They all know that you know that's something that he has a relation to, um, and the. I would, in the progression, um, this is the kind of, we're starting out with the most benign, uh, most kind of, um, at least not completely benign, and innocuous um, invocation of the United States. And this yeah. is Missoula, uh, Montana, where Robert Jordan is from, and where he's thinking um, that he would go back to after the war and that maybe he will take Maria um, with him. Um, and this is actually a good moment to think about you know, exactly the nature of that romance between Robert Jordan and Maria. Why not marry her? Sure, he thought. I will marry her. Then we'll be Mr. and Mrs. Robert Jordan of Sun Valley, Idaho, or Corpus Christi, Texas, or Butte, Montana. Spanish girls make wonderful wives. I've never had one, so I know. And when I get my job back at the university, she can be an instructor's wife. And when undergraduates who take Spanish four come in to smoke pipes in the evening and have those full valuable, informal discussions about Quevedo, Lopez de Vega, Galdos, and other always admirable dead, Maria can tell them about how some of the blue-shirted crusaders, for the true faith, sat on her head while others twisted her arms and pulled her skirts up and stuck them in her mouth." Um, it, I began by saying that this is relatively <laughs> benign, but in, in fact, there's no such thing as a benign invocation of a distant home in Hemingway. It might start out, you know, even from beginning to end, it's, there's something very funny about the tone of that invocation. Um, the first part of it is is just a kind of um, the first little bit of it about going back to you know, I mean, all the cities, you know, the kind of the heartland of America. Um, and then the particular job that he had—he was a uh, professor um, at the university, um, teaching Spanish—and um, the kind of the joke about you know people coming in in formal discussions. That's—I would say that actually is kind of a benign irony in the sense that um, we all tend to be ironic about things actually that we are quite attached to. I noticed yesterday I was talking about a writer that I love. Um, who writes about food? And I said, you know, she's cornered just she two books out on food. And I said, she's cornered the market on food writing. And it was I was talking to. It really looked at me. Um, but I mean, I actually love this author. Um, but that's just my way, you know, of 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 not being being too attached. You know, showing some critical distance. Um, so it, the first part of the, um, of 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 that is just the kind of the, the typical professional irony. Um, you know, it something that you really actually do want to go back to and, and, and you know have, have some yearning for. Um, but in the midst of that, um, the um, the it, Robert just can't stop himself from importing something else to that otherwise benign environment, um, and so we sort of know ahead of time. Maria was once raped. We have no idea when that happened. Um, it, this is Hemingway's way of telling the story, um, giving bits and pieces of the story, uh, one at a time. So this particular importation um, of something that happens in Spain into an otherwise innocent American environment has the way not only of darkening the textures of that otherwise innocent college town, um, but also completely changes his relation to the local setting. Um, It's not even just a place where he's having trouble with Pablo. That's the least of the problem. There are much more deep-rooted problems. Um, So this is another spin on the idea of being rooted in your community. Um, usually, when we think of being rooted in our community, uh, we just think of you know being having stayed there for a long time, maybe having uh, been there for generations, uh, or at least within the life of a person many many years. Um, and usually, it's a good thing. But there's another way in which being rooted in your environment um, means that all the dark episodes from the past are visited upon you, or all the few other all angers, all hatreds, um, are constantly being reactivated. Um, sometimes just in memory, and sometimes reenacted in the bodies of people who are otherwise young. Maria is very young girl, um, but what is being visited upon her is not personal. Um, it really has nothing to do with her. It's not. They don't mean to rape Maria. They're ma- raping her um, as a symbol or something else. So this is the other. This is the hazard of um, spending all your life and being rooted in one particular community. Um, is that ancient um, angers um, can uh, can be inherited by by people who are relatively young. So um, this, I would say, this is the basic dynamics uh, of the relation between the United States and Spain. Uh, is that there's a kind of spill over in both directions um something very violent spilling over into the American context. Um, and then we'll see another way in which the violence of the American context will spill over into the Spanish setting. Um, and um, this is um, actually this is still relatively uh, benign, instant, um, but again something just not quite right. Um, yes, and talking about gypsies. And I should say that uh, Hemingway actually is very um, uh, 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 f- kind of surprisingly um, far-sighted about the, the problem of the gypsies. and They're now called Roma, and it's a huge problem in the sense that the, Euro- the European Union is rec- uh, recognizing the fact that the Romas actually have always been oppressed by various national governments. So it's a quite a big issue in Europe. Um, and Hemingway, back in the in the when he was writing about the Spanish Civil War, already seemed to have caught on. Um, yes, and said the Gypsies believed the bear to be a brother of man. So also believed the Indians in America, Robert Jordan said. And when they kill a bear, they apologize to him and ask his pardon. Do you have any Gypsy blood? No, but I have seen much of them. And clearly, since the movement more. There are many in the hills. To them, it is not a sin to kill outside the tribe. They deny this, but it is true. Like the Moors. Okay, so it is not a sin to kill outside a tribe. Usually, I mean for most of us, I think you know the injunction is against killing, period, mm. right? So there's just no qualifying no qualifying after that. But according to nsamu it is completely okay for the gypsies to kill anyone outside of the immediate tribe. So you know, it's a straight um, ethnic divide. Within your own tribe, you don't kill anyone or you don't kill anyone unless you're under serious provocation. Outside of your tribe, you're free to kill anyone. So that's an incredible charge to level um, against the gypsies. But what is weird is that Roberton comes up with this analogy is that the gypsies are just like the Moors. Okay, so this might not make any sense to us right now. But it turns out that this is actually one of the aspects of the deep cultural roots in Spain. Um, this is a beautiful um, instance of the Moorish architecture in Spain. You guys know that the Moors um, from Africa, from North Africa, um, actually were the rulers in Spain for 800 years. Um, it was in 1492, the same year that uh, Columbus discovered the New World. Uh, it was the same year that the Moors were expelled from Spain along with Jews. The Moors and the Jews were the two persecuted ethnic groups in Spain. Um, and so uh, when Isabella uh, of Castile, Um, expel the the, the moors from Uh, Granada. There was a a, a policy uh, throughout Spain um, to try to erase um, Islamic book learning. Um, Cordoba was a huge uh, center of learning throughout the Middle Ages. um, And people from all over Europe would go to Cordoba to study. um, Arabic science was very, very advanced. Arabic, Moorish architecture was beautiful. Um, Córdoba had bath houses, more public baths than any other city in Europe. It was basically a beacon of enlightenment in Spain, in, in all of Europe. Um, and when they were uh, destroyed by the uh, Catholic um, forces, by the Catholic monarchs, um, there was a, much of an attempt to try to erase all of that. It wasn't successful. So we still, today if we were to go to Cordoba or Toledo, we would still see lots of Moorish architecture. So there's one kind of um, sore point in Spanish history is that they really have done this to a very glorious civilization. Um, but there's another sore point that is more immediate to the Spanish Civil War. And this is reported by the American poet Langston Hughes who was there along with Hemingway. Um, and Langston Hughes was really struck by the presence of the Moors in the Spanish Civil War. Um, so he wrote several pieces about the Moors, uh, sometimes seeing them in the hospitals and actually ha- ha- having this very uneasy kinship uh, between himself and the Moors. So this is uh, from his essay, General Franco's Moors. The Moorish troops were colonial transcripts of men from the Mor- Moroccan villages and ties into the army by offers what seemed to them very good pay. Franco's personal bodyguard consisted of Moorish soldiers, tall picturesque fellows in flowing ropes and winding turbans. Before I left home, American papers had carried photographs of turbaned Mohammedan troops marching in the streets of Burgos, Seville, and Malacca. And the United Press dispatch from Gibraltar that summer said, Arabs have been crossing the Straits of Gibraltar from Spanish Morocco to Algeciras and Malacca at the rate of 300 to 400 a day. General Franco intends to mass 50,000 new Arab troops in Spain. So given the past history, given the uneasy relation between the Spanish, the Spanish and and the Moorish population of North Africa for General Franco, actually, to use the Moorish troops as very active combat units against the Spanish Republican side. That is about the worst he could have done. It was successful, actually. He won the war. Um, But it was about the worst in terms of being tone deaf. He was probably about as tone deaf as anyone could be who won at the end. Um, but um, that's what happened and so there were indeed lots and lots of pic- lots and lots of pictures of um, the Moors crossing over from Africa just paying to, Spain to fight, fight the Spanish Republic um, here are his um, Moorish uh, bodyguards and um, the engaging engaged in more active combat um, so to bring up the Moors um, I don't even know if it's you know what motivates um, Robert to make that analogy uh, between the Gypsies <coughs> and Morris. Uh It couldn't really be um, just blindness or just carelessness. Um, I think there's some intentionality in there. Uh, but it's sort of hard to know why he would want to bring up this very, very sensitive issue for the Spanish. Um, so I think that or um, we can say is that it seems that it's very easy. Um, for an involuntary foreigner uh, to say something that is wounding to locals, maybe without intending it to have the extent of the insult, the extent of the injury um, that is actually the actual outcome of saying something like that. Um, Robert probably had no idea that mentioning the Moors would create those kinds of connotations, um, those kind of um, Just, just edginess um, on the part of his Spanish heroes, but that's um, what he's doing. So once again, a kind of spilling over. Thinking about Native Americans with their own very uneasy history in the United States. Thinking about Native Americans. Thinking about Gypsies in Europe. And thinking about the Moors. Three ethnic groups, all with uneasy histories behind them. And it is the invocation of all three of them in the same breath that makes that particular exchange especially um, uncomfortable, Um, if not downright hurtful. But um, let's just look at a more serious um, instance of of, of this kind of distant home being a kind of irritation um, uh, to to the immediate environment. Um, So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Robert Johnson suddenly starts talking about lynching in Ohio. Um, This is completely uncalled for. This is in the context of talking about the execution of the fascists. And out of the blue, Robert just mentions this lynching that he was a witness to um, and about the drunkenness on the effect the drunkenness of people in general. Um, it is so, Robert Jones said. Um, when I was seven years old and going with my mother to attend a wedding in the state of Ohio, at which I was to be the boy of a pair of boy and girl who carry flowers. "'Did you do that?' said Maria. How nice. In this town, a Negro was hanged to a lamppost and later burned. It was an arc light, a light which lowered from the post to the pavement. And he was hoisted, first by the mechanism, which was used to hoist the arc light, but this broke." This is a bizarre. Um, description of lynching, to say the least, is stuck in the middle of this long story about execution of the fascists. And not only that, but it seems that much of the focus is on the mechanism of hoisting this person up who's about to be lynched, um, and on how unreliable this mechanism is, um, that it actually it breaks once and then it has to be done all over again. So um, what we can say is that there's kind of a slightly out focus um, uh, nature uh, to the invocation of the United States. Um, the proper mm-hmm. focus really ought to be on the act of lynching itself. Anyone telling the story, it would have been on the act of lynching. And instead, it is our focus so that it somehow it's just focused on the mechanism of hoisting the person up. Um, and. I think it's a kind of a deliberate blurriness that suggests that this is really how the United States looks um, to the Spanish locals, that you know they can't get the focus right. It's somehow off. And that off focus is dramatized by Maria's response, which is completely inappropriate, shows the highest degree of ignorance. Um, well, she doesn't know what's coming, but you know just to say how nice, uh, she has no idea. She's completely out of it. She doesn't get any of it. Um, so. The reference to the lynching might seem out of the blue to us reading uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls right now, but lynching actually was a big issue um, all through the 1930s. Um, Even though the actual number of lynching had declined at that point, um, it was highlighted, um, it was brought to the public consciousness for a number of reasons. Um, one is um, this very famous song that I think that you guys uh, probably have heard, uh, Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit, 1939. Um, it's a great collaboration between um, a black singer and actually the songwriter was um, um, Jewish, um, Abel uh, Mirapol. So this is one of the first instances um, of a black-Jewish collaboration resulting in this classic. Um, uh, song um, in the jazz repertoire, uh, but these are the lyrics of "Strange Fruit," and you can see why it would that image would lead to those lyrics. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves, blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant South, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, the scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop." Um, the lyrics, the um, Billy Holiday was the one who made the song famous, but really it was um, a Able, Mirópo that that made the songs uh, such a great song, Um, and I think the power of the song really just comes from the contrast, the alternate rhythm between the kind of cliche image of the South, you know, the pastoral South, the magnolia, the smell of the magnolia, and then the smell of the burning flesh. Is that alternate rhythm that creates generates the peculiar power of this song? Um, So that's partly why lynching was such a an issue on everyone's consciousness in the 30s. Um, But there were also other issues. And in fact, the song um, is a great song, but it's also slightly misleading um, in the sense that it's suggesting that lynching was strictly a southern phenomenon, um, which actually wasn't the case. Um, And so all we have to do is to look at this uh, New Yorker cover Mm -hmm. of uh, March 19. 1938, very late, really very, very late for this to be on the New Yorker's cover, this racist, um, you know, just the northern population being flabbergasted at how lazy and drunken blacks are um, because they, they were migrating uh, in large numbers to the north. So um, a relatively new phenomenon um, in the 20th century actually was the um, substantial number of lynchings, uh, both in the northeast and also um, in the Midwest. So this is a kind of very famous um, lynching, double lynching, of ship. And Abram Smith in Indiana um, in 1930. So once again, very, very late for that. Um, and it's because of these um, very sensational uh, lynchings in the North um, that the NAACP um, actually um, had this um, regular practice of just hanging out a flag in the New York City office announcing that a man was lynched yesterday. Um, And that was also in the 1930s. Um, So it was something that was an ongoing problem um, and very much a kind of a a, a hot-button issue um, in the 1930s. So um, as a consequence of that, um, there was an anti-lynching bill that was trying to make its way. Uh, through Congress and the Senate. And it passed in the House, um, but because of the filibuster, filibuster in the <laughs> Senate, it, it led to the withdrawal of the bill um, in February 1938. Um, so um, it, it, um, it, it it was just something that just never went away. I mean, it was an unresolved issue um, all the way through the 1930s. And so Hemingway actually was very much plugged into um, the politics of the United States. When all of a sudden he would uh, make Robert Jordan suddenly make a reference to lynching, um, but just to go back, you know, move away from that history of lynching in the United States, back to its impact um, on the Spanish environment. Um, the response of Maria and uh, and 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 Pilar uh, to lynching in the United States is. Once again, very odd. As I said, when they lifted the Negro up for the second time, my mother pulled me away from the window. So I saw no more, Robert Jordan said. But since I have had had experiences which demonstrate that drunkenness is the same in my country, it is ugly and brutal. You were too young, at seven, Maria said. You were too young for such things. I've never seen a Negro except in a circus, unless the Moors are Negroes. Some are Negroes and some are not, Pilar said. I can talk to you of the Moors. So this is mind-boggling that this should be the response to lynching in the United States. Um, We can't even say that it would be reassuring to say that it's just cultural ignorance or the impossibility of cross-cultural understanding that is resulting in the responses from Maria and Pilar, it would be nice to be able just to say, you know, it's because they don't know anything about the United States. But I don't even think that that is the case. Um, So I would invite you actually, this is something to think about, you know, why the Spanish always have such weird, um, and that's putting it mildly, weird responses to to violence in the United States, period. Um, The response Mm -hmm. is never the right response. It's always so off focus that it's you know, it's not even the wrong response. It's just, it's just hard to believe that anyone would respond like that. Um, so, um, but the, the, what we see right there um, is that this once again, the invocation of the Moors in conjunction um, with violence in the United States. So all we know is that when they try to make sense of something that they don't understand, when the Spanish try to make sense of something that they don't understand. Moors are the ones who, the people who come to the mines. So, but it's it's, 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 it's a moment when any kind of communion between Robert and Marie and Pilar, any previous communion between them is completely breaking down. Um, So I just want to um, talk about another episode that has exactly the same kind of structure of incomprehension, ignorance, and incomprehension on the part Mm. of the Spanish. Um, And this has to do with the Republican Party. You you guys remember that the leftists in Spain were the Republicans, right? They are defending the Spanish Republic. So to be a Republican in Spain means that you are on the left. And this is the context for that conversation. My father was a Republican all his life, Maria said. It was for that that they shot him. My father was also a Republican all his life. Also my grandfather, Robert Jordan said. In what country? The United States. Did they shoot them? The mother looked, the, the woman asked. "Keva?" Maria said. The United States is a country of Republicans. They don't shoot you for being a Republican there. All the same, it is a good thing to have a grandfather who was a Republican, the woman said. It shows a good blood. My grandfather was on the Republican National Committee, Robert Jordan said. That impressed even Maria. And is thy father still active in the Republic? Pilar asked. No, he is dead. Can one ask how he died? He shot himself. For avoiding being tortured, the woman asked. Yes, Robert Jordan said, to avoid being tortured." So this is where we get that mix of the comic and the tragic. It is a comedy of errors so far. For a good part of that passage, it is a comedy of cross-cultural error, Um, just not being able to wrap your mind around the fact that to be a Republican in the United States is a very different thing, being a Republican um, in Spain. So just not being able to, you know, this is just a kind of a, the, the permanent <coughs> blinders um, in the mind of Maria and Pilar. So if that were just the case, and if it were to go no further, um, that would just be a kind of comic, uh, you know, kind of almost moment of comic relief. Um, in Foam the Beltos. Um But as is always the case with Hemingway in this particular novel, um, the comic suddenly morphs into something else without any warning. So all of a sudden, we get the detail about Robert Jordan's father shooting himself to avoid being tortured. And that can only have only one meaning for the Spanish. Um, It fits completely into the personal history of Maria. It fits completely um, into Pilar's understanding of political history in Spain. Um, But right now, we don't know why his father killed himself uh, and what kind of torture he is talking about. So we have to wait a little longer uh, to have that mystery clear up for us. Um, And to have that mystery clear up, we actually have to go further into the past. So, um I've been talking about distant homes in terms just of spatial locations, but there's also a distant temporal mm. home. Um, it turns out that the nineteenth century is also a necessary home for Robert Jordan, especially the Civil War. It's almost equivalent mm. of Paris um, in terms of psych- psychological need for that home. Um, and it's not just any civil war, but his grandfather's civil war. and this is, his moment of homecoming. This is the home that would receive him and shelter him. Remember something concrete and practical. Remember Grandfather's saber, bright and well-oiled in his stented scabbard. And Grandfather showed you how the blade had been thinned from the many times it had been to the grinders. Remember grandfather's Smith and Wesson. It was a single action officer's model, .32 caliber. And there was no trigger guard. It had the softest, sweetest trigger pull you had ever felt, and it was always well oiled. And the bore was clean, although the finish was all worn off, and the bright metal of the barrel and the cylinder was worn smooth from the leather of the holster." Um, so this is a, like Hemingway's description of the trout fishing um, in, in our time, very, very clean. The smoothness, cleanness of their operation. Um, but in this particular context, um, the Smoothness and the cleanness and the worn outness uh, of that pistol suggests that this is a well used weapon. Uh, Robert Jordan's grandfather was a hero of the Civil War. Um, his saber had been to the grinders numerous times because it has been this, the blade had been so well used. So without saying anything, without using the word glory or heroic, any comparable adjective, um, Hemingway gives us the. the sense that the Civil War was the heroic moment, was the high point in the history of Robert's family. And it was very much vested in his grandfather. And at that point, it has receded. It has to recede. It has to be receded into the past. It belongs to the 19th century. But Robert Jordan wants to activate it over and over again, bring it up to the 20th century, because he needs that. (laughs) And we know why he needs to bring the 19th century back on the next page when we know what happens to that pistol. Then after your father has shot himself with the pistol and you had come home from school and they had the funeral, the coroner had returned it after the inquest saying, Bob, I guess you might want to keep the gun. He climbed. Okay, I should just stop and clarify that this is something we'll be talking about. Um, Actually, the narrative switches from second-person pronoun. Robert Jordan addressing himself as you. So that's you is Robert Jordan. And then it switches back to the third person. He climbed out on a rock and leaned over and saw his face in the still water and saw himself holding the gun. And then he dropped it, holding it by the muscle, and saw it go down, making bubbles until it was just as big as a watch charm in the clear water. And then it was out of sight." So this passage that comes just on the opposite page um, from the previous invocation of the Civil War weapons of the grandfather tells us exactly why the 19th century and the Civil War is a necessary emotional shelter for Robert. He's just so ashamed of his father. Um, he wants to clean up that entire episode, drop it into clear water so that it will be completely out of sight. Um, he can do that to the pistol. He can't do it to the actual history itself, but that's as close as he can get to wiping out that history. Um, and so in this Moment, actually, um, there is no Spanish environment that is invoked, um, and I think that this is no mention of the immediate Spanish setting, and I think that that is suggestive as well, um, in the sense that really the homes for Robert, I think, um, and is a very uh, pessimistic reading of the novel. Uh, there are basically just two homes for Robert. One is the Paris. Um, of the um, evening papers and the chestnut trees. And uh, the other home for him is a home that never was a home that was in his lifetime, but a home that he can inherit vicariously through his grandfather. And that is the American Civil War as his spiritual home, because this is the one place where he has affirmation of himself, that he's not ashamed of himself, not ashamed of his family history. Um, and so those are impossible homes for him at this point.